You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And this is Miranda. And today, uh, Miranda, we are going to be doing probably our last entry in talking about technology that is used for reading and looking inside the brain. What a saga it has been. Yes. So this will be, I don't know, what are the three or four of these? Because we did CT and... and um, Pet scans. Yeah, pet scans together. And then FMRI. Yes, and so that FMRIs. was... A, yeah. And then FMRIs. We, and today we have electroencephalography, or EEG. So um, I don't know if anyone's ever had one of these. I have not. I also have not. I was going to ask yeah. you that. But if any one of our listeners has, then please write it in and let us know. The idea on this one, and we'll talk more about it, but this is another form of technology that is designed specifically to look at what the brain is doing. And the other ones we've looked at usually did some kind of scan, looked at what was happening inside the brain in one capacity or another, and... Um, and would construct using a computer a kind of a kind of model, right? That so was supposed to represent activity in different parts of the brain. And all of these are really showing where activity is taking place and therefore trying to determine what is going on and how it could be dealt with. And that's especially useful, I think, when you have obstructions like a tumor or something like that. And a lot of people are interested in this idea of sort of mapping out what parts of the brain are being used for what, which is tricky, to say the least. There are a couple of instances of people who have had large chunks of their brain removed when they're very young and essentially either regrown a significant portion of that brain or the rest of the what remained of the brain was able to sort of take over those duties, really implying that although there tend to be regions that become localized, uh, the brain does a lot of things. And it, as I've mentioned before, it's sort of this central hub where everything is connected. And as long as it's early enough, those connections can still start to form. Um, but once those connections have been pretty well established, it's much more difficult to try and re reform those later if something happens like a traumatic brain injury. Now, that's all a bit off topic because what we're really talking about, again, is this thing that is, de is designed to investigate what's going on in the brain. So let's start with a little bit of history. So a physician named Richard Catton, Catton, Catton? <laughs> I think hmm. Catton. That looks like Catton, Catton to okay. me. <laughs> okay. So a researcher named Richard Catton, uh, who was practicing in Liverpool, uh, discussed his findings about this electrical phenomenon in the British Medical Journal in 1875. And his findings related to the cerebral hemisphere of rabbits and monkeys. And in 1890, Adolf Beck, who was a Polish physiologist, published his research on the spontaneous electrical activity of the brain in rabbits and dogs. And he began experimenting on the electrical brain activity on animals by placing these little electrodes on the surface of their brains specifically. And his observations in that sort of fluctuating, what you might call waves of brain activity, led to the uh, the idea of of brain waves, which is something I think people hear a lot and don't necessarily know what that specifically means. But it has to do with that fluctuation of electrical activity followed by a weakening of electrical activity in part of the brain. Yeah, so in 1912, there was a Ukrainian psychologist named Vladimir Vladimirovich 
Pravnich Naminsky, and he published the first animal EEG. That, <laughs> a so, long sorry name for we, a very brief uh, description of what he did. Sorry if we totally butchered that name for all of our <laughs> Russian listeners. All one of you. Uh, in 1914, there was a photographed EEG recording of an induced seizure that was uh, done by a, um, a individual named Napoleon Sibolsky. Yeah, and the first recorded human EEG um, was conducted by a German psychiatrist by the names of Hans Berger. Hans Berger. Hans Berger. <laughs> and Berger expanded on um, what Caton and others who worked with animals had been working on. Yeah, he also invented the name of the device, which he called the electroencephalogram, as we mentioned earlier. And then British scientists Ed, um, Edgar Douglas Adrian and H.C. Matthews also later replicated and confirmed Berger's discovery and developed those in 1934. So continuing through our timeline here, in 1934, some other researchers named uh, Fisher and Lowenbach, they demonstrated the first epileptiform spikes on an EEG. Which is important because a lot of what the EEG has been used for is looking at specifically seizures and epilepsy. Now, in 1935, just a year later, some researchers named Gibbs, Davis, and Lennox, or Lennox maybe, described the interictal spike wave and the three cycles patterns of clinical absence of seizures. And so uh, these are one of several kinds of generalized seizures. And the next year, uh, the first author of that, Gibbs, and another author named Jasper, reported that the interictal spikes were the focal signature of an epilepsy. And that same year, the first EEG lab opened in Massachusetts General Hospital. So fast forward to 1947, the American EEG Society was founded. And that same year, the first International EEG Congress was held. And then three years later in 1950, an adjunct of EEG called EEG topography was developed by a man named William Gray Walter. This device allowed for the mapping of the electrical activity across the surface of the brain. Now, this is only popular for a brief period of time in the 1980s um, and um, was never really accepted by neurologists. And in 1988, uh, there was a demonstration of actual control using an EEG of, of a robot. So, um, yeah, uh, utilizing those brain waves in order to actually move something. So is your, the understanding of this that I'm, I'm getting is that someone had this hooked up to their their brain in a way and that they, the person with the electrodes on their head were then able to control a robot? Is that is that what that meant? So essentially a subject, a human subject, is hooked up to an EEG, um, which and this EEG is actually hooked up to a computer interface. And there's computer and special software that is utilized for this. So the subject engages in some certain mental processes which are read by the computer. And the computer then sends uh, signals to the robot interface, which then moves the robot. So someone was mind controlling a robot. Through a computer. Still. Still. That's in, in nineteen sci-fi, yeah. That's crazy. That's bonkers. Man, that's so awesome. Yeah. Okay, fact of the podcast. Boom. <laughs> All right, so we've been talking a lot about this. And by the way, listeners, you're going to have to remember every single name that we said on that list. Just kidding. Yeah, there's a quiz. <laughs> I was actually debating. I was like, should we even say all these names? Like, who's going to listen? Who's going to remember this? Anyway, um, so let's actually talk about what an EEG is. As we said, it, met, it is something that is used for looking at the brain, but what does that exactly mean? Yeah. So really what this is, is an electrophysical monitoring method to record electrical activity of the brain. All right. So here's how this thing works. And we're going to talk about some advantages later, but essentially what's nice about this is that it's 
doesn't necessarily need to be particularly invasive. So uh, sometimes it can be. There can be these electrodes that are inserted through the skull and on the surface of the brain. But generally what happens is these little suction cuppy electrodes that have these little metal sensors in them that are sensitive to to electrical activity, they're placed along the scalp of a person. And I'm pretty sure that you you can't have hair in the way. I think that would get in the way of this working. But in one way or another, these little electrodes are placed along the scalp. So what happens is these electrodes measure the fluctuations in voltage that are a result from the ionic currents within the neurons of the brain. So it gets down, it's very microscopic what it's doing. It is small and it can't do an individual neuron. So the multiple electrodes record the brain's spontaneous electrical activity over a period of time. And what you, the result is that you will see as the electrical activity swells in a group of neurons in a part of the brain, then you'll see on that EEG a waveform go up. And as that uh, electroactivity subsides, the waveform will go down, resulting in this picture of what looks like a wave, right? It's going up and down and up and down, moving left to right across the screen as it's happening. And that's why it's described as a brain wave. Your brain doesn't actually wave, but it has these electrical fluctuations that rise and fall in different parts of the brain. So essentially the EEG activity, it really always reflects the summation of this synchronous activity of thousands or millions of neurons that have similar spatial orientation. So essentially the electrical potential generated by an individual neuron is far too small to be picked up by an EEG, as you were saying, Abraham. So the electrical charge of the brain is maintained by just billions of neurons. And if you were to look at just a whole brain, what's happening is there's sort of electrical burst activity that are happening all over the place, like like fireworks kind of um, that, that's going on. and But what happens if, in a particular location where you have it, it looks like you have this rise and fall of activity in that particular location, even though it wouldn't look like a wave across the brain if you're to look at all the different activity, but it would show up on that particular sensor. Okay, These neurons are exchanging ions is what's happening uh, when the neurons fire. And that volume conduction occurs when there's a similar charge in the ions and they repel each other. And that, that when they repel, that pushes out the many neurons in the the same time causing that big wave where you have sort of that butterfly effect one causes a big push and that sort of causes these waves to occur and when that wave reaches the electrode on the scalp it pushes on that pushes or pulls that metal sensor that is inside the electrode and the difference in that push or pull voltage between the electrodes can be measured by a voltmeter which is exactly what it sounds like a little tool to measure voltage and that reading over time gives the EEG pattern that is seen yeah and so Again, it's really important to note that the waves will not be detected if the cells do not have a similar spatial orientation or if their ions do not line up. And so the scalp EEG activity shows oscillations at a variety of frequencies. That is, several oscillations have, I guess, characteristic frequency ranges. That is uh, a sort of pattern of, of how far ranging they will be, as well as spatial distrib- distributions and associations. And these are associated with different states of functioning of the brain. And these oscillations represent synchronized activity over a network of neurons. Right. So I guess the big picture here is that you have, the brain is doing things all the time. And I actually don't know how deep, I guess, the waves would ever go that you would see this electrical activity, because this is definitely going to be largely represented by the cortex. 
And there's a lot of things that go on in the cortex. So I understand the interest in that as a particular region of the brain. But that's just the outer surface of the brain that we're talking about. That's not to say that it wouldn't measure things that were deeper down. But the electro the wave that happens has to reach the electrode for it to be detective. And it has to be a wave of many, 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 many neurons. We're talking, again, thousands and millions of neurons within a single wave are participating in that activity. And they're all part of this interconnected network of things that involve our senses and regulating our body and then even things like t uh, our motor movements and then the, the things, the choices that we make and the things that we do. Very complex network that's going on. Okay, so what the EEG is then capable of doing is simply turning that relative pattern into a series of waves to look at what looks like normal activity. So the people who argue or think that for something can detect uh, our brain waves to read our mind, it simply cannot possibly work like that. <laughs> I mean, it just, it literally produces a waveform visual for the amount of bouncing. There's nothing that could possibly be distilled from that in terms of like reading your thoughts or nothing that could specifically control those thoughts by forcing the waves to do another thing because we don't even know what's happening when the waves form in the first place. We couldn't, sim we couldn't simply rec recreate the waves and reliably produce any kind of thought or experience um, by doing that electrical stimulation. That being said, people have done things where they've electrically stimulated part of the brain and they'll be able to look and see what those results are and then can replicate those results by stimulating the same part of the brain. Um, but that, again, is a very small region of a very complex network. And so it kind of depends on the person. But we always ask the big question here, who cares? What do we use this thing for, right? Exactly. And so there are a lot of diagnostic applications for EEG. Um, so some events can be related to is looked at the potential fluctuations of the waves um, within time that are locked to a particular event. And so it measures the brain response that is a result to a specific sensory, cognitive, or motor event. And so in this particular instance, we'd have to assume that there was a cognitive event because if someone told us, then it would be an actual action event, which is their language happening. So we, we have something that occurs. We don't necessarily know what it is. Call it a cognitive event. I suppose. And then that would be something that would be detective. So this is essentially a response to any kind of stimulus, any kind. That's a lot of things. <laughs> exactly. And as far as the spectral content of the EEG, um, you can really analyze the type of neural oscillations or brain waves that are produced. Now, the EEGs are most often used to diagnose uh, a few things. One of the big, big ones, as we mentioned earlier, is epilepsy and the abnormalities that occur during the seizures that are um, are required for an epilepsy diagnosis. Those abnormalities can be observed with the EEG measurements. So if a patient is being considered for something called resective surgery, and what this is, is it's a neurological procedure that attempts to eliminate seizures in individuals um, with epilepsy. Um, so in order to get a greater measure, other instruments are required, such as electrocorticography or ECOG. And this signal recorded within an ECOG is on a different scale of activity than can be recorded with an EEG. So um, all that's to be said that the EEG definitely, as we've discussed, measures um, very surface activity um, and is for very specific diagnostic often diagnostic purposes. Yeah, some people do use EEGs to also diagnose sleep disorders, um, the depth of an amnesia disorder, coma, encephalopathies, brain death, which is something that should probably be talked about on this show at some point, and then can also be used to diagnose other sort of um, 
medical issues as well. These can include things like tumors. So as far as strokes are concerned, it can be used as an indirect indicator of cerebral perfusion within a surgical procedure that's used to reduce the risk of stroke, um, as well as other brain disorders. The use of the EEG for these types of diagnosis has also decreased the need of techniques such as the um, magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, see our previous episode, and the computed tomography, CT scan, see a previous episode, uh, that are also used for doing scans. These are pretty cheap and pretty fast. Yeah, and EEGs are really limited, again, to that to spatial resolution, but it continues to be a really valuable and useful tool for research and diagnosis. Yeah, the EEGs provide this sort of millisecond range temporal resolution that is that millisecond by millisecond changes in the electrical activity in the brain, which is really not possible with something like a CT PET scan or even necessarily with an MRI because those are doing such a, a large 3D model of what's going on in the brain. Yeah, and another significant advantage of an EEG is the mobility of the device. So when you have something like an MRI, a PET, or a CT scan, you're talking a massive contraption um, that needs to be stored in a very specific location. Um, the individual needs to be brought to it. Uh, there's a lack of flexibility with its use, whereas an EEG can kind of be wheeled around and is is far more compact and mobile. Right, yeah, the EEG, especially compared to those things, is is fairly portable, is fairly quick, and is fairly inexpensive, and also as we mentioned before, pretty in, um, non-invasive. And so, as I mentioned, the typic, uh, the, it's sure, the typical length of, the, of a routine EEG can last around 20 to 30 minutes to get the full um, diagnostic, I guess, protocol run through. So oftentimes, though, the routine EEG of 20 to 30 minutes might not be completely sufficient. Um, and if it is a requirement to record a patient, say, while they're having a seizure, the patient may be admitted for days or you know, even weeks while the EEG is constantly recording. Right. All right. So some other things that we already mentioned in terms of those advantages, it tends to cost less than other medical devices and techniques. Yeah. And immediate care can be provided with the use of an EEG. Because it's so portable, it can be used in more places. It's not really that bulky, um, similar to the other things that we mentioned. Yeah, and an EEG has higher temporal resolution. I mean, it, it gives you, as we discussed, it's within milliseconds you're getting the information. It's also more tolerant to the um, the patient's ability to sort of move around with the MRI, the PET, and the, and the CT scans. You can't move very much, or it'll it'll mess up the image. Whereas an EEG, it uh, it doesn't really depend on that very much. The EEG minimizes the um, the artifacts that would show up as uh, f- f- from someone moving around too much um, from another type of scan. Yeah, and the machine is also silent, which um, can really be beneficial if you have an individual who's particularly sensitive to loud noises. You know, a small child, um, you know, maybe someone with some sort of developmental disability that has difficulty tolerating something, um, something that's so discomforting, like a loud sound. Yeah, those other medical devices are, um, they're, they're these large bulky machines that have sort of a small opening for a human to be inside of. EEGs do not have that problem. So they don't have issues with people who have a history of claustrophobia or being um, uncomfortable in small tight spaces. In addition, there's no exposure to any sort of high-intensity magnetic fields as there are in other techniques such as the MRI. And so the EEG can also be used um, with participants who might have some sort of metal implants, whereas, you know, an fMRI or another sort of scan that utilizes uh, magnetic fields is not appropriate for those participants. All right. Now, 
some of the things that EEG has been used for in addition to those diagnoses is that a lot of people will try and use this machine to measure some covert or sort of private thought processes that are going on, again, by not necessarily trying to read someone's thoughts, but trying to understand what is going on in the brain when people are having those mental experiences. Exactly. There's quite a bit of contemporary research which utilizes EEG to look at these processes. Uh, They often include things like creative tasks, creative problem-solving tasks, as well as emotional responses. So having individuals who are connected to an EEG attempt to recall emotional experiences, and then the EEG um, will produce a measurement, a waveform of of what those people are experiencing. Uh, A really, what I found to be an interesting study looked specifically at EEG changes as method actors, which I thought was interesting that the subjects were specifically method actors, looked at their generated emotions. So this was a study done by uh, Tucker and Dawson out of the University of North Dakota, and they had nine method actors recall personal experiences to create some emotional states. And these states included sexual arousal as well as depression. And what they found was that there was greater activation over the right hemisphere when sexual arousal was induced, uh, more so than there was for depression. And these findings are evidently consistent with what is tends to be observed during sexual arousal as far as activity in the right hemisphere of the brain. And they further posit that certain specific emotional states could be linked to particular brain patterns in particular parts of the brain. Um, This also has been used to measure how the brain's process changes um, during the different phases of life as someone develops and matures. Yeah, it's also been used with individuals who can't reliably make independent motor responses as well. Man, if they can control a robot, then think what else they can do just sitting in a chair. So, Of course, there are some disadvantages to this this tool. Right, yeah. Now, this does have... um, it has low spatial resolution on the scalp, right? This is It's placed on the scalp, so you only, only have the real estate that's available on your head. And it requires this intense interpretation to hypothesize what areas are actually being activated by a particular response because you have to sort of cast a wide net. Now, in an fMRI, you can really specifically pinpoint an area of the brain where you see activity, but in the EEG, it doesn't allow that precise location to be determined. Yeah, and alongside that, it's a it's a poor measure of actual neural activity because really what it's measuring is the activity of millions and millions of neurons um, that's occurring all at the same time. Uh, you're not really getting a clear reading of more specific neural activity. Right, which means you can't locate specific things, that, especially ones that are chemical, like neurotransmitters. So, for example, drugs and things like that. It's also pretty time-consuming. It takes a long time to connect a patient to an EEG. There's a lot of... Um, Uh, with the probes and everything, there's a particular, I know, kind of, um, there's a glue that that you have to use. You know, it involves really precise placement of dozens of electrodes on the head. Um, There's gel, saline, there's all these pastes um, to get them into place, um, particularly if you're not using a sort of um, cap that can often be used within EEGs. Right. I mentioned that um, one probably needs to do this without hair, but I do recall now um, that there is a, uh, there is a sort of it looks like a bald cap that one can wear that that would work to do this. I unfortunately didn't spend time looking up whether or not this has been shown to be more or less precise than uh, how a, a traditional EEG is conducted. Um, but it's 
uh, it is one way to conduct it without having to shave your head and then glue stuff to your skin. <laughs> and finally, you know, the signal to noise ratio is poor. Yeah, essentially meaning that you could have some false positives and false negatives because it's a little bit unclear exactly what's being measured and where, even though you get that really good within time um, analytics that is available because it's measuring those milliseconds timestamps. Um, it still does not necessarily rule out things that are sort of normal occurrences to things that are something else. So EEG can often be used in combination with some other neuroimaging techniques. Yeah, so a lot of times people will combine uh, the EEG with fMRIs to do more specific diagnostics. But there are some technical difficulties that can arise from making these combinations. So there actually have been some studies utilizing an MEG, which is a magnetic encephalography, and an EEG um, together. And this has some advantages over using the neuroimaging techniques all by themselves. EEG requires accurate information about certain aspects of the skull that can only be estimated, such as the skull's radius and uh, conductiveness of the various known skull locations. What, one advantage of that uh, magnetic encephalography um, is that it does not really have this issue. So combining these to have a say, simultaneous analysis allows this to be corrected for. Yeah, and the MEG and the EEG, they both detect activity below the surface of the cortex very poorly. And like the EEG, the level of error increases with the depth below the surface of the cortex um, one attempts to examine. However, the errors are very different between the techniques, and by combining them, you kind of allow for a correction of some of the noise. Yeah, so the, the MEG has access to virtually no source of brain activity below a few centimeters underneath the cortex. The EEG, on the other hand, can receive signals from a greater depth, although with a higher degree of that noise, um, you know, unclear what's actually going on. And so combining the two makes it easier, easier to determine what in the EEG signal comes from the surface versus what is coming from the cortex because the MEG is very accurate at examining those signals from the, the the more shallow surface. And so you can determine if it's not being picked up from the MEG, then it's probably coming from uh, deeper inside the brain. And thus it allows for an analysis of deeper brain signals than either of the two would be able to do on their own. So a combined EEG-MEG, which now coined the EMEG, this approach has been investigated for the purpose of source reconstruction in epilepsy diagnosis. So on top of having to memorize all those names, you have to also memorize all of those acronyms all the that acronyms. we've been using. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's critically important. Yes. All right, so finally, <laughs> the combination of EEG with positron emission tomography, or PET scans, see previous episode, uh, has been used to provide researchers with the ability to see EEG signals that are associated with different drug actions in the brain. Remember, the, the PET ones are the ones that use those tracers that go into the brain that will cling to specific neurotransmitters or chemicals and can therefore be looked at in isolation. And so having all three of those techniques together has a relatively thorough examination of what might be going on in the brain. Let's take it home. Sweet. That was, uh, that was very efficient. I like it. <laughs> so again, um, you know, the EEG isn't a brain reading device, but it really can be useful for detecting some overall patterns of the brain. And as we saw, you know, within that uh, fun little robot experiment, um, there is some potential there for utilizing an EEG um, and, you know, some advanced computer software to um, allow for some pretty neat things to happen. And this is one of those um, one of those tools that's, that has a really great application of specifically helping people who suffer from epilepsy and uh, helping to diagnose that and figure out 
what's going on in a way that's inexpensive, relatively fast, and also um, non-invasive and portable. And so it's, uh, it is a cool technology for doing that. And I also, uh, another separate point I always like to make is the people who talk about Oh, you know, it dials into our brain waves, man. Um, there's like that that doesn't mean anything because our brain doesn't again, it doesn't really have brain waves. What it has is these fluctuating patterns in neural activity that happen as a response to environmental stimuli, right? And so, um, there isn't this like thing pushing into our brain waves or a thing that's reading our thoughts. What it really is is just detecting essentially what's going on mostly on the cortex and a little bit below the cortex of the brain in terms of um understanding where activity is taking place and the relative fluctuations of those activities. And so it therefore is useful for looking at when there's huge, huge spikes in activity that would be detected and be indicative of a something like a seizure. Exactly. And I think it's important to note, you know, you will see those spikes in brain activity, um, which can indicate things like a seizure. But, you know, the if you if you look at um, the imaging of someone who is brain dead versus someone who is not, you know, even the differential there isn't so great in a lot of ways. Um, not to be too grim, but my father passed away a couple years ago and it was, uh, he had went into cardiac failure and he was in a coma for a while and he actually was hooked up to an EEG. But um, what they saw was there was absolutely brain activity, but it was very, very sparse and in between. And that and what was good is because you can measure with an EEG to the milliseconds. You could see the patterns and, and the pauses between the patterns, which can then indicate, um, you know, to what level particular functional um, brain activity of an individual who is likely to recover from some sort of incident like that versus someone who is not likely to recover. So, you know, there are some good indications as far as being able to diagnose that as well. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's another, I think, a positive use for this is a, as making, is informing decisions of that nature that are, they're difficult decisions exactly. that one has to make. And so have, having more information is just, uh, is just better. Exactly. All right. Well, I got nothing else. Do you have anything else you'd like to cover on this one? No, I think it's an interesting tool. I'll be interested to hear from any listeners who have had any experience with it. Yes, please write in. Let us know. We'd like to hear from you info at y at www.podcast.com and uh, of course if you reach out to us on any of the other social media platforms on soundcloud twitter facebook instagram all of those uh we will be there and we will we do read all of our messages and um, we try and get back to most of them so uh listen for those at the end credits uh just another big thanks to Brittany marie desanti and Britt bowerly for their research and writing help on this episode thank you for reminding me of that all right this has been another episode of why we do what we do this is abraham and this is miranda we're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening. 
and we hope you have an awesome day.